Well, if talking about sex in public makes you uncomfortable, I am sure that having grandparents talk to you about sex has to really be helpful. Some of you are wanting to dive underneath the uh, chairs right now. But hey, people, we're so excited and honored because we as grandparents have been asked to do the third in the series of Shane Wood, what he started. If you'll look up here on the screen... Between two old people. <laughs> stories, stories about sex and marriage, if we could just remember them. <laughs> I sent a copy of that screenshot to my daughter of uh, this um, Between Two Old People, uh, stories of sex we can't remember. And my daughter put this what comment. I've never been less curious to ask. <laughs> I'm guessing that probably what most of you are actually feeling is this. <laughs> but the truth is, it's hard to stay light on a subject like this. We want the best for you. We love you. We have grown. We have grown to see you as our own kids and our own grandkids. And what we want for you is so important. And the pain in this room is also so deep. We're going to probably go pretty serious. Yes, our birthdays are quite a while back. But if you're not going to listen to grandparents, who are you going to talk to, listen to? We had three children, and not a single one of them were the Immaculate Conception. <laughs> and Julie and I stand here not just as ourselves. We stand here honestly representing the Mark and the Carlas and the, and the Gary and the Mary Zustiaks, the Terry and Carol Bolins, and the Chris and Carol DeWeltz, and the Griff and the Sallies. Because any of us who have lived as long as we have lived, we have, ourselves, we had a time period that we were the 18 to 22-year-olds who got off that boat onto this island. And we wandered around on that island and tried to figure out. And then for 47 years, I've watched other boats every single year pull up and drop off 18 to 22-year-olds. We care deeply. So what we want to say to you this morning is we'd love to be helpful to you. Let's start with this. Sex needs redemption. Well, what's it need redeemed from? Well, several things. I've got about 15 minutes in this, and then Julie will have about 15 minutes. But let's start from this. Let's redeem it from the wrong storytellers. You should probably never let the junior high youth group be the ones who park the cars on Sunday morning. You should probably never ask your puppy to guard your plate of food. And you should never let the predators, charlatans, charlatans, culture manipulators, and big boys in the locker room tell you about sex. They can't be your storytellers. Because whoever is your storyteller becomes your co-writer. It couldn't be clearer. Either God is your storyteller and the one who invites and you invite to co-write your story. Or somebody else is your storyteller. And no matter how much you say, well, I don't pay any attention to it. If you let them be your storyteller, they tell you your story as they co-write it. Proverbs chapter 7 couldn't be any, any, any clearer about this. Let me just take you through just, just a little bit. Proverbs 7 says, stand here. I want you to see this. Come and stand and look. Verse 6. And at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. And I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. And he was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading and as the night of the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, with crafty intent. You go down to verse 21, and it kind of cuts to the end of the story. With, 
With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And all at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. In chapter 5, I think verse 9 is probably about as clear as you can go. Lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. A redeemed story of sex is not dirty. It's not destructive like that. A redeemed story of sex is incredibly sacred. Sex is a Christian subject. It's every bit as holy as the words like love and grace and forgiveness. So too are the words sex and nakedness. Those words are as home and as comfortable here in a chapel and in a worship service as they are any other discussion about God. God has a running commentary throughout scripture about sex. It's God's honorable and good gift to you. The Bible doesn't shy away from him in any way, shape, or form. The Bible's full of good stories of good sexual relations, and it's full of stories of bad and misused and misappropriated sexual relations. I can summarize it for you. It's not hard. The plot is God co-writes your story. The plot in God's sexual storytelling is this. In your marriage, be sexual. And outside of your marriage, its misuse will destroy you every single time. Tommy Nelson paints this wonderful visual metaphor of sex. I've used it before on this stage, but I think he's right, and I think I have to use it again. He says, throughout history, every home has needed a fireplace. You look at the house and whatever part of the world you want to, that fireplace is, is essential. By it, it warms the house and makes it livable. In front of that fireplace is where a father reads to his children. It's over that fireplace that the food for the family is prepared. And the fire in the fireplace turns that thing from a barn into a house. But if the fire is out of the fireplace, it's the very thing that destroys the children. It's the very thing that scars everyone that matters. It is the most destructive thing. God gave you an incredibly powerful thing in this thing called sex. In the fireplace, you will love it. Outside of the fireplace, I promise you, there's nothing but scars with it. God tells one story about sex and offers to be your co-writer. Come on, kid. Let's write a grand and honorable and delightful story of life and this gift. But there's also a line surrounding you about three miles deep of hucksters and purveyors of flesh. Come on, kid. We have a story to tell you and we'll write you in. It's sooner. It'll be dirtier. It's more popular. But I don't have to tell you the rest of it. You know it's seduction since you were in fourth grade. But God's story is still available for you. It's always a redeeming story. In God's story, the context and environment for your sexual expression is marriage and worship. That's a funny little context for sex, worship. But there is a uniqueness to it. I just would brush across what you heard in the, in the first in this series. There's a covenant with God. And God invites you to fold your life into his and for him to write a grand and marvelous story of a faithful relationship. And then if you choose, you don't have to, but if you choose that you want to fold a spouse or a mate into your life, and so you want to fold them into a covenant relationship with you and a covenant relationship with God, wonderful. It's part of the gift he gives you. And then he says, as your marriage gift, your wedding gift, your family gift, your home gift, let me give you the gift of sex. And there's this crazy, powerful gift that God gives for that covenant. There's a mystery to sex. There's something far more going on than biology. If you don't think so, then why are most of the deepest hurts in this room? 
somehow related to some form of sexual betrayal. It is not just some kind of bumped into biology. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there's a deep magic at work. That's why in the greatest marriages, in the lifelong loves, sex is confined in in that union. To be really blunt, in the kingdom of God, the real foreplay of sex is not skin, but it's covenant and worship and faithfulness and a good God who folds you into his life. Don't get the foreplay wrong. There's another key part of God's story, and that is sex is not primarily a physical drive. It's an emotional one. The wise and mature believe that sex is about building oneness. It's about us. It's about lifelong unity. The fool believes that sex is primarily a physical drive, that it's about flesh and body parts and getting something and me and my desire and my needs. Oh, no one would dispute that sex can be kidnapped and embezzled and corrupted and be made about a physical drive, but it wasn't made that way. The fool will say it fits in this list. Food, water, sex, those are your physical drives. And if you need them, get them off somebody else's plate if you need to. Stop at the local convenience store if you need to. Oh, be sure to put romance around it, but it's a, I have needs too, you know. It's a physical drive. But God never put it over that side. God put food and water on this side, but he didn't put sex in that. God puts sex first and foremost as an emotional and a unity drive. When sex is right, when sex is right, it's because there's a he and a she begin to dream. And they begin to dream separately. What if it was no longer an I or a me, but what if it was an us? What if it was a covenant us? And each longs to extend the covenant they have with God and fold another person in. And so they get married and begin to share the same house and the same mailbox and the same closet and the same kitchen table. And they begin to share each other. And something mysterious and wonderful begins to occur. Something beyond and unexplainable by words. Something that drives trust and vulnerability and commitment and loyalty deep into the soul. And the two become one. And so in that marriage, in the good marriage, sex is often, it's a lifestyle. It's playful. It's tender. It's sweet. It's funny. Some of the funniest jokes and the best humor you'll ever have, you can't tell anybody else. (laughs) Because as a couple, it is a delightful journey. And it's really important you hear this. In a marriage, it's not self-promoting. There's not a single couple that's ever got married that didn't discover that they're pretty different when it comes to actual sexual metabolism. Every couple is different. And the couples that, that do poorly in their marriage, who rip apart even their covenant, though they may stay married the rest of their lives, are people who fight for their own rights sexually. The couples who do well, it becomes this great litmus test. Yes, you're wired sexually different than I am, but I am taking great care of you. And sex two people trying to outdo each other and looking after the other one well and something happens beyond the explainable words a sweet and powerful gift I intend to say only one really painful thing this morning and I've chosen to say it here you embrace God's story and you get what I've described you embrace a different story 
Then because of sex, you'll destroy relationships that could have been good and lifelong. Because of sex, you won't get to live out your wedding vows. Because of sex, you won't even, the children you have, you won't even get to put them in bed at night. Somebody else will tuck them in bed. They'll take their little Spider-Man suitcases and their little Wonder Woman suitcases from house to house because you didn't embrace God's story. Because of sex, some of you will endure great internal turmoil the rest of your life, a sense of self-loathing. Because of sex, some of you will rip apart the ministries that you care about and the churches that you want to love, and you won't be able to finish what you started here. And it's simply because this, you did not embrace the storyteller and the co-writer in your life. You embraced somebody and someone else. Please don't. Because of sex, some of you will never be emotionally close or emotionally one with a husband or wife. Oh, you may be married the rest of your life, but they will feel like they're married to a cardboard cutout. They can't quite connect with you. Something because you tainted what was intended for right and your oneness can hardly be discovered. Your life won't be and it isn't better off because you didn't believe what God said about sex. In your marriage, be sexual and outside of marriage, its misuse will destroy you. There is no safe sex out of marriage, for there is no condom for the heart. Second thing I would say is it has to be redeemed from our own misguided desires and emotions. I'd like to tell you we just need to redeem it from them, but the truth is the lies come out from our own chest. Arrogance and wounds are part of our story. And those desires out of arrogance and wounds have twisted sex. Let's start with arrogance. There's a smug little voice in all of us that would chirp, God would never give me desires that I'm not supposed to act on. Or God, this is your fault. I've asked you a thousand times to take it away and you haven't done your part, so don't blame me if I act on it. Or simply, I want what I want. We have a three-year-old granddaughter who's sweet as all get out, but the other day she came out of her fourth grade brother's room carrying one of his prized possessions and her mom said to, to Campbell, did, did you ask Hunter if, if, if you could take that? And she said, oh, Hunter won't care, but don't ask him. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of all of us that I want what I want. Lust feeds off arrogance and it always demands entitlement. That's so different from discipleship. In God's call to you, you have countless immature desires that you say no to. Loving your enemy is counter to your immature desires. Courage in the face of fear is counter to your desires. Speed limits and stop signs and paying taxes and cleaning bathrooms are counter to my immature desires. Arrogance will often make lust the God of your life. And there's hell to pay because I was so arrogant, I wanted what I wanted. The other place that broken desires come from is wounds. One thing children and adolescents are not good at is interpreting events in their life. For example, a five-year-old child and their three-year-old sibling may be in a garage and something falls over and almost universally the five-year-old misinterprets that. My fault, guilt, shame, blame, labeling. When the real story is unsafe garage unsupervised children might even be a real story of a five brave five-year-old who tried to help you might want to cut that five-year-old a break if that was you and something sexually has happened maybe it happened when you were older seventh grade sophomore senior in high school as i was preparing for this sermon i took a break from it and i started reading the new york times Seven of the first 13 articles had to do with sexual wounds. Michael Jackson in Neverland. Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, and 
sex trafficking, hush money in the president, sexual molestation by teachers, and so it goes. But you don't have to read that. All you have to remember is your senior year in high school. We often have trouble as adolescents and children interpreting events, right? Those wounds create great confusion, massive confusion. On the one hand, you hate it. On the other hand, it introduces you to concepts and desires that you have no idea what to do with. I was probably a second grader when an older boy introduced me to non-covenant sex. I hated it. I remember the shame and the embarrassment. But it introduced me to ideas that took root later in late elementary and in junior high that had both elements, elements of shame and of great interest and fascination. As an aside, somehow in the sovereignty of God, what happened to me was never seriously a problem for me. Somehow I, I knew it was something that happened to me. It was something that affected me, but I knew somehow it wasn't about me. It's kind of like when somebody throws up on you. It's unpleasant and it's not fun, but you somehow know they're the one who's sick, not you. Some of you probably need to process that in some way. For many of you, your story is much worse and the shame didn't fall away. But wounds tend to cause you to go two directions, one of two directions. One is they make you to want and need power over other people. Because of my wounds, I want power. And sex is your weapon of power. Anything that can be used for great good can by logic be used by great evil. Do you really think that fornication, adultery, rape, pedophilia, incest, hookups, and dating sex are out of love? A great deal of it's out of power. Just the need to have power. The second direction wounds goes is toward desperation. Please affirm me. Please endorse me. And because sexual desires have been introduced, it's a short but illogical step to sex is the God of blessing. And so the great golden calf of our age involves taking off your pants. And the worship lyrics are, please give me a blessing. Please bless me. Do you think the porn in the dorm is about anything except emotional deficit? Well, it may start as empowerment and lust, but that's not why it continues. It's loneliness and scared and self-doubt and self-loathing and lost. And so we drink salt water to cure our thirst. You don't solve porn with better software. You do emotional repair. Do you think dating couples are so in love they can't help themselves? Not hardly. One or both of them either have such emotional deficit or such a need for power that they're begging for affirmation or control. And the salt water of sex doesn't quench the blessing they're asking. Sex will not save you. Our arrogance and wounds have taken us many places. Same-sex practices, adultery, affairs, Pornography, teenage sex, dating sex, friends with benefits, engagement sex, selfish sex in a marriage, sexual abuse in a marriage, solo sex, sexual fantasy, sex trafficking, prostitution, polygamy, pedophilia, rape, bestiality. You can keep going. They are all painful stories of desires outside of a covenant. They come from wounds or arrogance. As a heterosexual male, I don't stand here with any superiority. I'm well aware that my own demographic is responsible for most of the sexual tragedies that occur on this planet. No one has the right to boast. Broken sex must be redeemed in all of us. But I also stand here as a man in his mid-60s on behalf of an awful lot of godly guys I know. There is a redeemer. He still heals lepers. And Lazarus still rises from the dead. I've taken five minutes more of my time than I should have, but I've got to put two more in, and then I'm going to let Miss Julie take you. (laughs) 
So how do you redeem it? Let me just give you just as simple as possible. It goes like this. Repentance. Repentance is not the anger of God. Repentance is the weeping of God. One of the greatest theological studies I've ever done was an Old Testament study of repentance. God's hands held out at you. Everywhere repentance is ever called for in the Old Testament, it is return to me, the plea of a father. That's where the power and the love for real change is. You don't get well without repentance. Here's the second thing you do. You turn the light on. The cockroach loves the darkness. You try to defeat the cockroach in the darkness, you're just playing its game, and you'll never get well. Turn the light on. You're not serious about killing the cockroach till the light comes on. Here's the third thing you do. You'll have a group. You'll have to have a group. Josh McDowell, who's wrote many things that you know, I heard him speak this last fall, and he says, I got forgiveness by God in my prayer closet, but I got healing in community. You'll have to have a group. I don't know who that group is. Let me walk you through some possibilities. It may be just your peers and fellow journers. They will walk with you. It may be that it's just your peers and your fellow journers, but you're going to need a guide a little bit along the way. You'll need an older man, an older woman who walks with you and your peers. It may be that your peers and an older man or older woman out of the church or somebody that you love and has loved you, but it also involves a counselor because there's trauma in your life and you'll need to help process that. Or it may be your peers and a guide and and a counselor and you actually need a recovery group because you need other people who've had the same thing. I went through the SALTS training with Dan Allender. I, I, I've gone through the process just in watching how the body of Christ heals itself. Maybe you need that. And here's the last thing you do. It's interesting I've walked in the dark to even say this. Let me come back to the light. Give me some light here on the stage. Here's what I mean by that. You control the environment. Nobody ever lives holy by willpower. You live it by controlling the environment. You do not go into places that self-control has to be used highly. You always use your environment where self-control can be very easy. May God bless you, Miss Julie. I'm still going to take my full time. So what are the preventive measures you're going to do when you're going to handle sexual temptation? Because people, it's here and it's there and it's all around us. The easy thing for me to say to you would just be give you some suggestions to watch out for. Stay off the couch. Get out of the back seat. Turn it off before it turns you on. And that might be useful, but lists and, and steps and principles have no higher aim than behavior modification. And unfortunately, adjusting your behavior does not transform your heart. That's exactly what Jesus thundered against when he was criticizing the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, you people are so consumed with looking on the outside of the cup, cleaning the outside. It's the inside that's filthy. He said, clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will be clean too. These were religious leaders. These were people that held position of honor. These were, and even more responsibility. Please hear me. I don't have, I don't have the uh, position to rebuke you in any way, nor would I want to, because I love you people. We both do. But I do want to ask you, how clean is the inside of the cup? See, all of you students are here because you're training, and I hope you Tuesday tour people are tuned in too because we want you here 
to train to be in ministry and in churches and, and be leaders in vocations. And I'm just so thankful that you people are here. But I want you to, I just want to bring up a couple of things to you. Where do you think the church is going to go in her holiness? If her preachers and her youth leaders and her elders and her women's ministry leaders are, are indulging in their own sexual sin while still preaching and teaching righteous living? You do know, don't you? that sheep follow their shepherds. Don't think for a moment that just because if you don't seriously take care of your sexual sins now, don't think for a moment that they're just going to magically disappear when you walk across the stage someday and get your degree, when Doug Aldrich hands you that piece of paper. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to go off the stage and go take your tassel and move it to the other side of that weird little hat. And all of a sudden, you're going to be holy in your sexual life. That's not going to work. And some of you already know that just because you went to the county courthouse and got some little piece of paper that said a marriage license and you joined yourself to your sweetheart, that that was just going to necessarily eradicate your unholy behaviors and your thoughts. I'm so glad that some of you are so excited about doing biblical justice. And I, I just, I get as excited with you as, as you're excited because you have dreams of things you want to do and, and God working through you. But I'm really saddened that some of you are involved in the very things that we even need social justice for. So that's why I want to go deeper than a few suggestions. There's only one thing that will transform your thinking, which then in turn transforms your desires, which then in turn transforms your behavior and your actions. And listen, it's this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. I want to remind you of some really good, encouraging news, and it's this. It is God's will that you be sanctified. What's that mean? It means that God has a vested interest in you. He bought you for his own. And the currency that he used was the blood of his own son to buy you back. It's the very thing that 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 proclaims when he talks about your sanctification he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it what's he saying he will make you holy he will clean the inside of the cup romans eight thirty two. if god is for us who can be against us if he didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all won't he also give us everything else but here's the deal people the premise of that sanctification only takes place under his lordship. Hear that. Kenny Luck of Every Man Ministry says that most of us function under some sort of sexual atheism. We follow Christ in most areas. But when it comes to his teachings on sex, we excuse ourselves. When you were buried in the waters of baptism, you did so with this confession. Just say it with me. 
I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm going to take him as what? My Lord and my Savior. If you want to finally be done with the strongholds of pornography or sexual indulgence or same-sex temptations, all of it, it only happens as you daily acknowledge him as Lord of your life. I want to give you um, two biblical responses to sexual temptation that I think will always, always give you victory. They're going to sound like polar opposites, but they are so deeply entwined. The first won't surprise you. Flee. Flee. It's found in 1 Corinthians 6. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you'll notice that, it does not say just be careful around sexual temptation. It does not say watch out. It doesn't say get as close to the edge as you can without tripping on over. No, it says flee, take flight, avoid it, escape the situation. Have you noticed that most times in this culture, first responders run to a crisis? But in the case of sexual temptation... Your first response has got to be run for it, run from it. It's the courageous thing to do. And frankly, it just makes common sense. I have never read the story of the failed seduction of Joseph and thought him a wimp for running away. No, he's one of my heroes. You have heard comments since you were 10, 12 years old from your parents from good-meaning friends. I've even said it myself. Things like, I just don't know how kids can do it these days. This culture is so sexualized, they don't stand a chance. That kind of comment may be full of compassion and empathy, but it really isn't very helpful because you begin to believe it. And I want you to hear me. You are not victims. There's no need for a pity party. Paul certainly didn't see the Corinth church as victims. They were living in the mud puddle as much as we are. And he says to them, this is good news. No temptation has overtaken you, but what's common to man, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way of escape that you may endure it flee. Jesus even got pretty intense when he was talking about lust in the Sermon on the Mount, because if you remember, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Truly a metaphor. But as John Piper says, it denotes violent action. And you may accuse me of being a little too dramatic. That won't be the first time someone's accused me of that, but I'm just repeating the news. Jesus also said in that section, unrepentant lust is something that can take you straight to the fires of hell. Hmm. So how violent do you need to get, people? Get rid of your phone when you're at your most vulnerable times. If nighttime is the 
time when you are most vulnerable to pornography, then take your phone, your iPad, whatever it is, take it to a dorm parent, take it to a trusted friend, take it to an RA, and have them keep it for you overnight, after night, after night, after night. Because if that cell phone causes you to sin, you cut it off and you throw it away. If you're careless in what you watch on Netflix, then for goodness sakes, cancel the subscription. It's not that hard. If it, if it causes you to sin, then you cut it off and you throw it away. You run from the movie. You don't watch the sitcom. You don't listen to the music. You flee from the apartment. You break up with the guy. You stop listening to the propaganda that encourages encourages a sexuality outside of God's design. That's what fleeing is. If it causes you to sin, you cut it off and you throw it away. I've kind of wondered whether to put this in or not, but I guess I'm going to. Um, (laughs) Men, in no way am I excusing you for any kind of misbehavior toward the women on this campus. But ladies, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Would you please watch the way you dress? I don't mean to be mean. I don't mean to cause any embarrassment. I can just imagine you girls sitting there right now. What am I wearing? What am I wearing? But in my humble opinion, there's some of you that are dressing beneath your dignity as a Christian woman. I get it. All of us want to be fashionable. But let's face it, even fashion has become sexualized as much as anything else. And if men are stimulated by visual sights, then for goodness sakes, just know that in modest dress, ladies, makes it very difficult for them to flee. Even if it's only in their thoughts. And if we're going to honor and be considerate of our brothers in Christ, then let's dress in a way that helps him. I'm about to use some really strong language here, and and I know it is, but I want you to see the seriousness of what I'm saying. Sexual harassment is not done just with words, and it's not just done with behaviors. It can be in the way we dress. High and low are good terms for reporting the weather. Not so much for the way we dress. And tight is a good way to describe friendships. I don't think so much about your clothes. Flee sexual immorality. It will always serve you well because this is the great thing. If you are fleeing from a sexual temptation, you are running toward freedom. That's the first response. It's to flee. And then then this one, the second one, is to stand. Last week, um, I was visiting with Emma Staley up in the calf, upstairs in the calf. And Michael DeFazio, bless his heart, was also in the um, upper floor of the cafeteria. And he came over to us after Carolyn's message last week. And he said, Julie, he said, are you ready? Referring to this message. And. And he said, you know, the first week I used the O word. And he even said it to me out loud. And 
And if you remember correctly, it wasn't organic. <laughs> and then he said, and Carolyn today used the B word. Julie, what's going to be your word? And Emma Staley, bless her heart, said the F word. And I'm thinking, fun? Well, Michael, I've taken the challenge. Here's my word. I'm not very creative, so I'm just going to use Carolyn's. And I'm going to spell it. B. I B L E. Yeah, I think that's that is the word she used. I don't know what you people are remembering, but that's the word she used. Ephesians 6 reminds us that we are in a great battle. It calls us four times in this chapter to stand. Stand firm. Stand firm. And people, you cannot stand firm if you have nothing to stand firm on. The battle Satan is waging against us is a battle of lies. That's what 2 Corinthians tells us. 2 Corinthians 10 he says, we're to destroy strongholds of human reasoning and false arguments and religious or rebellious thoughts. But his lies are so wrapped in subtlety and disguise that you will fall. You will not stand firm if you do not know and trust in God's word. Satan fired the first shot of the battle in the garden when he convinced two people to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the fruit in the, or from all the trees in the garden? That doesn't seem right. And he's using the same old lies today. And it's just like he takes out those fiery darts from Ephesians 6. Every one of them is just one more aim at us. Did God really say he created them male and female? That doesn't sound quite right. Did God really mean there's a particular order to leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh? Surely that's not what he meant. Did God actually say flee from sexual immorality? Wasn't he just talking to married folks? Because see, that would make sense. But see, you people, oh, you're single. And you have desires that need to be relieved. It's been an honor for Randy and I, four years now, to have the opportunity to talk with so many of you. Thank you for letting us speak into your lives. But I have a concern, and it's this. While many of you understand the battle, and you feel the battle, and you have the scars and wounds from the battle, you are slow to pick up the weapon that God said to use in the battle. When, when, when you're sitting in our office, and so often this is the case, 
and you're dealing with something to do with sexual temptation, and we say to you, how often are you in the word? Are you really, are you really looking to the word of God to find the truth on this issue? And so often you sit there with shame and a few tears running down your face. I'm not really. I'm not. People, Moses did not say to us, clear back in the beginning, that this is a textbook for you to study to pass a test. Moses said, these words are life to you. I know there's far more to standing firm. Ephesians 6 talks about it. But I can say this. The word of God is the only weapon he gave you for the battle because it is the only weapon you will need. Imagine what it would be like, people, to just control the habit to get over the same-sex temptation, to be free of the guilt and the shame, decide right now this is where it all begins. He is Lord. And it doesn't matter if you understand it all or not. It doesn't even matter if you agree with him now or not. Would you believe this? That he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. So we don't know how the end of this sermon is going to be. How it's going to end. You people decide.